Welcome, Harvest Church family, and thank you for joining us this week for our sermon podcast. We pray that you will be blessed and encouraged with the message prepared. Right now, let's listen in to this week's message. Good morning, Harvest Church. Wow. I'm so proud of Markel and Nicolene. Uh, yeah, yeah, got an amen corner back there. Uh, Markel uh, mentioned the church that uh, I pastored for uh, 28 years. Um, prior to that, I served as a youth pastor, all in an urban context in Milwaukee. Uh, and I just recently transitioned out of the lead pastor role so that I could lead the National Black Fellowship and the WITH movement and we could come alongside of existing churches and pastors like your great pastor Perry and his wife Barb and um, Markel and I'm also privileged to be with uh, uh, Alton and uh, Lori Findlater who are part of the northwest region of this country uh, which includes Northern Cal and Nevada and uh, together we're just dreaming new possibilities for America's uh, inner cities and seeking to transform every community's pain point by releasing a disciple-making movement. I know that's the heart of your, your pastor, uh, and I'm so privileged to be here today. Uh, there's, there's a part of me that's missing, and that's my wife of the last 36 years, Judy. Uh, I wouldn't, won't put a picture up of her on the screen because you won't hear a word I say once you see her beautiful face. You'll just be distracted the whole message, so just trust me. She is beautiful. She's been my girlfriend for the last 42 years, my wife for 36. So we dated for six years. We got married, have been married for 36, and we're still dating. We have a 35-year-old son, Nick, uh, who is a media director at the church we pastored. And uh, he loves uh, everything that's sound and sight and lights and camera and action. And he's blessed us with a 16-year-old granddaughter. Her name is Autumn. Autumn is our reward for not taking Nicholas out when I really wanted to, many opportunities. How many grandparents we have out there, right? You know what I'm talking about then. I'm telling you, grandchildren are God's redemptive work, saying, okay, you've endured enough. It's time to, to really bless you with a double portion. Uh, but Autumn is 16, and uh, she's going to be a future WNBA star. I would show you video and pictures. You know, grandparents, we love to do that, right? But, uh, yeah, we're blessed and privileged to, uh, to represent uh, the National Black Fellowship in Milwaukee. As Mark Hill mentioned, we both grew up in 5 through 206. There's a documentary of that same name uh, that just kind of depicts what, what has happened and what's occurring in that community, much like any community in America. Uh, high uh, black male incarceration rate, high unemployment, uh, high uh, teen pregnancy, drug addiction, crime, violence. That's the neighborhood I grew up in. And I could have been another statistic like many other young people, but I had a praying mother. Can we just thank God for the praying mothers, praying grandmothers? My God, where would we be without praying grandmothers? And so this neighborhood wasn't all bad. When I was younger, uh, me and my other friends, my guy friends, we would meet up just about every morning in front of our houses, and we'd walk up the block, and we would go to the basketball court. There were two basketball courts uh, that we would typically play at. I played a lot of ball when I was younger. I probably still got some skills, but uh, not as fast as I used to be. Uh, and this one particular day, as we were on our way to the basketball courts, we realized that we only had nine players. And we would always walk past the house of Charlie Thompson. 
Now, Charlie Thompson lived about five houses just north of me, and every day, Charlie Thompson would wake up in the morning, and uh, he would sit out on his front porch with a football in his hand, just kind of tossing it up in the air by himself, looking for somebody to play football with. Everybody was scared to play football with Charlie Thompson because Charlie wore football cleats every day. He cut grass in football cleats, right? He shoveled snow in football cleats. He wore the long white tube socks. He had on some cut-off tight football pants and a football jersey that was kind of cut off showing his eight-pack. Not a six-pack, but an eight-pack. Charlie was 14 years old, but he looked like LeBron James. <laughs> Nobody wanted to play football with Charlie Thompson. Well, this particular day, we needed another man to, so we could play five-on-five. Five. And so he's like, hey, Charlie, why don't you come and, you know, round out the squad? And Charlie said, I'll make a deal with you all. I'll play basketball with you guys if after, when we're done, you guys come to the football field right next door to my house. It was just a vacant lot where a house had been torn down and grass grew in that spot. He said, come and let's play, you know, a quick game of tackle football after we're done. And we thought... Yeah, what, what harm could it do? So, when we got to the basketball court, God must have been mad at me that day because Charlie Thompson was not on my team. And when Charlie played basketball, he played it like he was on a football field. When he fouled you, you had a tattoo of a bruise where Charlie had hit you. I mean, he played basketball in his football cleats, you all. At the end of the, the basketball game, we walked back towards our house, and Charlie reminded us of the deal that we had just made with him. And so we had to divide up and pick football teams. And once again, God must have been mad at me because I was not on Charlie's team again. Back then, I was a, a, a skinny kid. I had pretty good speed, and so my position was wide receiver. The quarterback called to play. And I was supposed to run a, a fly route, just run straight down the field as fast as I could. The quarterback was going to go back and just throw a bomb, and I was supposed to catch it. I caught it, and I could see the end zone getting closer and closer. And I'm running, and I'm running, and then all of a sudden, I start hearing footsteps behind me. <laughs> I look back. It was Charlie Thompson. I ran as fast as I could. And I almost got to the end zone, and Charlie Thompson caught me. And when I woke up, <laughs> Charlie had tackled me so hard that he knocked the wind out of me. I don't know if you've ever had the wind knocked out of you, but you feel like you're going to die. That's the first and only time that, I, that I've experienced that. But, but in the medical world, whenever you have the wind knocked out of you, your, your diaphragm and your body has received such a blow that your diaphragm is temporarily frozen. It's spasming. And that diaphragm is the part that allows your lungs to expand and contract and you to take in air. And so you're not able to do that. And so you feel like you're going to die. You can't get any air in or out. And, but it's temporary. And... Many of us can relate to that experience, not just in the natural, but also in life and in the spiritual and in the emotional. You feel like you have the wind knocked out of you by life. I want to take you to a biblical story where David kind of experiences having the wind knocked out of him. 
And I'm going to take you to 1 Samuel chapter 30. And it's there I want to introduce you to a city by the name of Ziklag. Because the name Ziklag means winded or winding. I don't know why it got that name, but, but I think it's, it's relevant to the life of David. I want you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 30. I'm going to read verse 1 through 6. And if you're, if you're uh, viewing online, you can do that as well. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but they carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and his daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. David's going to help us today to get our second wind back. How many of you just kind of, you can relate to having the wind knocked out of you by life? You need your second wind? Well, David is showing us because he lived it personally. Those that were closest to David in his life, his, his I want to say wife, but he had two of them. I don't know how any man could just, you know, um, one is enough, right? But David had two of them. I mean, that's a good thing. <laughs> this is being recorded, isn't it? I had to bring some flowers home when I leave. <laughs> he lost his two wives. He lost his children. All of his men who had been away at war for three days, they come back, they're exhausted, they're hungry, they're tired, and home is the place that you're supposed to lay down your head and find peace and rest and provision and comfort. But when they get back there, the whole village has been burned to the ground, and they don't know where their wives and their children are. It was a gut shot. The wind was knocked out of them. And as Pastor Perry said, as we are here on this week, this holiday weekend of celebrating the life and the legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I believe that his message then is a message for people regardless of your ethnicity or your background. And that was a message that Jesus proclaimed, and it was a message of loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. It was a message that didn't stop at racial reconciliation, but it was a message that also dealt with justice. It's a biblical message because justice is where the throne of God is established on. Justice is what the prophets stood up and proclaimed. Justice is the reason that we fast and pray. And it's a message that, that reminds us that God has called us to live and walk in unity. And unity does not mean that we're all just in the same room together. That's proximity. Unity does not mean that we all think the same thing. That's similarity. Unity doesn't mean that we all even uh, dress the same way. That's conformity. But unity is what Jesus modeled for us. But there is an there antichrist spirit that has been in our world for hundreds of years. 
and it has caused us to have more allegiance to the man-made ideology of race than the grace of God. See, God didn't create race. God created ethnicities. In Matthew 28, he sent us to go to all of the ethnicities of the world and baptize and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that he's commanded. In Revelation 7 and 9, God says every ethnicity, every tongue, every tribe, every language is going to be gathered around my throne. But man made something called race, and man created it so that it would become a distinction between those of a different hue of skin and those who define race would have more favor and more privilege. And as a result of us breathing this, this, this spirit that's in our air every day, every one of us, whether you're red, yellow, black, white, or brown, male or female, young or old, we all have breathed the air. We all have drunk the water. We all have been tainted, colored, and touched, and impacted by race. So we all are racialized. And that causes us to think and act and behave and, and have attitudes in a certain way. It could manifest itself as, a, as an attitude of superiority. It could, it could manifest itself of feelings of inferiority. It could manifest itself in, in rage and anger or frustration or confusion or feeling invisible. We've all been racialized. And what Jesus has come and what Dr. King's message was I like to put it this way. It doesn't matter whether your, your parents and your ancestors came over to this nation on a slave ship or if they were indigenous to the land or if they came over on a ship called the Santa Maria or the Mayflower or the Pinta or whether they came across the Mexican border or the Canadian border or they came over the Pacific on a ship or they came through the, the, through the harbors of New York on a ship where Lady Liberty is holding up her torch saying, give me your huddled masses who are yearning to breathe freedom. We're all in the same ship now. And if you love Jesus Christ, it's called the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And that's what Harvest Church has been called to, be, to model as salt, light, and leaven in this region. That if you want to know how to, to, to really be conformed to the image of Christ, we are, we are being discipled to be like Jesus so that when the world looks at us, they'll, they'll see that we are his children by the love we have one for another. Yeah, we can give God praise for that. Because the reality is that there are a lot of people that are in this church and in this community and in this nation and in this world that have had the wind knocked out of them. In 1921, in the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, there was, a, there was a, a district called the Greenwood District, and it was also referred to as Black Wall Street. Black Wall Street was a part of town that was populated by middle class and upper class African Americans who had excelled in life academically and business wise and they turned this district into a, into a very thriving and wealthy community. Their homes were immaculate. Their homes had running water and plumbing, indoor plumbing, which was kind of unheard of back in the 1920s in most towns and communities. In this district, there were movie theaters and cafes and barbershops and private schools and, 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 and all types of businesses that were thriving. But on May 31st in 1921, an elevator operator of the name of, by the name of Dick Rowland, an African-American man, was falsely accused of raping a white woman. 
and there were a, right, a white mob of men who deputized themselves and became the judge, the jury, and the executioner. And they began going through, out of a, 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 an attitude of jealousy and a spirit of jealousy, they began going through Black Wall Street, burning the villages, burning the houses, killing the people who were there so that this, this town was, would never be the same again. That was a gut shot. That was an experience of having the wind knocked out. That's what David felt when he and his men came back to Ziklag and the city was burned and all of their closest possessions were taken away. Why is this message important for us today on this, this, this holiday weekend where we, where we celebrate the, the life of a king? And even more so, every day of our lives and especially on the weekends when we realize that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords lives on the inside of us, it's because Harvest Church that we have to recognize that there has been an attack and an assault upon our world, not just of a pandemic called COVID, but there is also another pandemic that has racialized all of us. And both of those pandemics together, they attack our respiratory system, systems. Right? Those who have been infected with COVID, you need a respirator. You need your lungs to be healed. But those of us who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, we have become believers because of the breath of God that was released on the day of creation into the nostrils of Adam. Those who believe in Pentecost know that on the day of Pentecost, the wind of God was released in that upper room. And it's by his spirit that we live and move and have our being today. And so as believers, we need our lungs, our spiritual lungs to be healed so that we can stand up and say to a world that has been divided politically and divided whether you should wear a mask or not, and that has been divided by race and has been impacted by a pandemic, you can say, if you want to know what love looks like, look at Harvest Church. Look at us. I felt like David before. I'm a 61-year-old black man. I don't know if you knew that I was black, but I just thought I would tell you. I'm a 61-year-old black man, and I can relate to having the wind knocked out of me, not just by Charlie Thompson. But there have been times that I've been profiled DWB, driving while black, <laughs> or SWB, shopping while black. That's a gut shot. That, has, that knocks the wind out of you. Breonna Taylor was shot and killed. SWB, sleeping while black. Ahmaud Aubrey, JWB, jogging while black. Last year, there was an African-American man in, in Central Park in New York who uh, very publicly, you probably saw the video, was profiled and threatened by a woman, and he was simply BWWB, bird-watching while black. Those are all gut shots. And that's the reason why God is saying to the world, look at my church. Because I'm not going to use the church to heal the world of racism. I'm going to use racism to heal my church. And when my church is healed, the world will be able to look at my church and say, I can see Jesus in you all. I'm passionate about this thing. It's exhausting to be a black man in America. That's my story. That's my testimony. But there's some lessons that we can learn from David's experience in Ziklag that can help all of us to get our second wind back. And if we're going to do that, we have to pass the tests of home, H-O-M-E, just like David did. David had at least three homes, Bethlehem, 
Adullam, and Ziklag. And David passed the test in each of those places. Now home, if you can pass the test of home, come on, you got it made because don't export the thing if it don't work at home. <laughs> right? I, lo I love to tell preachers, listen, don't tell, don't tell your congregation to love your wife if it ain't working at home for you, right? Sit down and get that thing right at home. The Bible says leave your gift at the altar and <laughs> go make it right with your brother. Then come and worship. You got to pass the test of home. Home is where the rubber meets the road. Home is where people know whether you're really saved or not. Home knows, home knows whether your testimony is authentic. So if you can pass the test of home, it, it, it's easy once you leave the door. So David has, let me, let me just give you some little background on David. David is introduced to us in 1 Samuel chapter 16 as a young shepherd boy because the prophet Samuel has been sent to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel. Why? Because King Saul disobeyed the Lord and became a people pleaser. He got fired, and God said, I'm going to choose a man after my own heart. I want you to go to Jesse's house, and I want you to take your horn of oil. And, and, and Samuel sees all of these good-looking men, seven of them paraded before him. He's ready to pour his oil, and God says, nope, that's not the one. Nope, that's not the one. Seven times. And God has to teach Samuel the lesson that we have to demonstrate to the, to the world is that don't look at the outer appearance of people. Don't look at the age. Don't look at the gender. Don't look at the, uh, the skin tone. Don't look at the outer appearance like man does because God looks at the heart. And after God rejects all of the seven good-looking boys, Samuel is puzzled and he asks Jesse, he says, are all of your sons here? And Jesse realizes he forgot one. It was David. And in the very next chapter, the world is introduced to David because his father has sent David to the military lines to bring his brother some bread and cheese. I think they had grilled cheese sandwiches back then in the biblical day. That's what my mind is saying. I'm, I'm getting hungry, Pastor Perry. Put some bacon and some lettuce and some tomato inside of that grilled cheese. Man, you got a great BLT. So David shows up at the front line and his seven brothers and King Saul and the whole Israel, Israel army is afraid to fight Goliath, a nine-foot-tall Philistine who's been trained for war since his birth. And everybody runs when Goliath shows up because they think he's too big to fight. David says, no, he's not too big to fight. He's too big to miss. I've killed lions and I've killed bears. I've taken the lamb out of the mouth of the lion while he was trying to devour it. And certainly this Philistine will be brought low before the Lord today. David kills Goliath, cuts his head off, takes his sword into his own tent. And King Saul, who's already been possessed by a demonic spirit, and it's multiplied by a spirit of jealousy and rage. You know, there are familiar spirits, families of spirits. That's why we need to be careful and guard our heart and mind. Because when you open up the door for one, they bring their cousins and their second cousins and their half-brothers. And, the, and, and all of a sudden, Saul has all of these demons vexing him. And he's jealous of David. And he, does, he becomes like Vito Corleone in The Godfather. You know, you keep your friends close and you keep your enemies closer. And he's keeping an eye on David because he wants to take David out. Because they began singing songs and they created rap lyrics that Saul killed a thousand, but David has killed his ten thousand. 
that's just the way my mind works. I'm seeing dancers in the background and, you know, the late, I'm just, I'm sorry, come back with me to the scripture. <laughs> and Saul has a spear in his hand and he's ready to kill David at any moment. And Jonathan's heart, the son of Saul, is knitted to David and he swears in covenant to protect David. But there's nothing Jonathan can do. And so David has to flee as a refugee for his life. He's left Bethlehem. And now he has to leave Jerusalem. He has to leave the palace because the king wants to take his life. And David becomes a refugee and he begins running for his life. And you know what? When you're in a desperate place and you're in a broken place, you'll run to your enemy. There are a lot of people that I don't blame for their addiction. I don't blame for their sexual promiscuity because they're desperate. And and sometimes when you're desperate and the church is not holding up its arms, instead the church is pointing its finger in judgment, you'll run to something that's bad for you. And David runs to King Achish of Gath, who's an enemy of the Israelites. He's an enemy of the people of Israel. But David is so desperate for a place to call home that he goes to his enemy. And when he gets there, he realizes that... He's in danger there. So he pretends to be mad, to be mentally insane, to lose his mind so that the king sends him away. David ends up in a cave called Adullam. Let me take you to some other scriptures to show you this test of home. The first test that we have to pass is the test in Bethlehem. That's David's first hometown. You remember David was born as a shepherd and Bethlehem on those hills of Bethlehem is where he kept his father's sheep. And the first test you have to pass to get your second win is you have to pass the test of stewardship. You have to pass the test of stewardship. David was not an owner, but he was a steward of the sheep of his father. And while everybody was in the house waiting for the oil to be poured upon their head from the horn of Samuel... David was in the background taking care of sheep. He was doing it outside of anybody's sight. He wasn't, there, were, there was no FaceTime or Zoom meeting. Nobody was, you know, no, no Facebook back then where David could get followers. Nobody knew what he was doing, but God knew. And there are times in your life and in my life where we have to pass the test of stewardship. That means that we have to do the ordinary, the routine, the mundane, the dirty stuff, cleaning toilets, wiping noses, changing diapers, without any thanks, without any rewards, without any recognition. But God is watching you. And it's when you're doing those faithful, menial tasks in the dark that God says, I'm going to expose you in the light. I'm going to promote you for what you're doing. There are, there are some that believe that, scholars who believe that David was not invited to the coronation and Samuel came to his father's house is because they believe that David was the illegitimate son of Jesse. Maybe that's why Jesse didn't even think, I have another son. When the prophet said, are all of your sons here? And Jesse said, oh, you know what, that's right. There's another one, his shepherd boy, David. He's out in the, sh- in the field. And Samuel said, go and get him because we will not sit down until he comes. And when David comes in from the field, the Lord says to Samuel, this is the one, anoint him. Can I just let you know that your day of promotion is coming? But you've got to pass the test of stewardship. You've got to be faithful with the natural things, with the small things, because God sees your work. He sees your your labor, and your labor is not in vain. 
Final thing about David's stewardship is the testimony that I read in Psalm 78. In verse 70, it says that God chose David his servant. And God took David from the sheep pens, from tending his father's sheep, to become the shepherd of Israel. You see, when you are faithful with the small things, sheep, God will give you something supernatural, people to lead. And David, he stewarded them. He shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillfulness of hands. He led them. The first test is in Bethlehem. That's his home. And it's a test of stewardship. How are you doing with the things that God has put in your hand? You say, well, I don't have much in my hand, preacher, but you got something. God knows what you are capable of. That's why he gave one, one talent, another two, and another five. He knew what each one was capable of. You have something in your hand that God is saying, I want you to be faithful with it. Amen. The second test comes at Adullam. This is a test where David is in a cave and 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1 and 2 picks up the story. David departed from there and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. <laughs> this is a test of relationship. First is a test of stewardship. Now this is a test of relationship. And relationship is about how do you handle people? How do you handle the people in your lives? No wonder why people, some people choose to work with machines <laughs> and animals, right? Because they don't talk back to you. They don't get an attitude. People do. But how do you handle relationships? Husbands, how are you doing with loving your wife like Christ loved the church? Don't look at anybody. Just keep looking at me and wives, stop elbowing them. How are you doing with submitting and respecting and honoring your husband? Children, how are you doing with honoring your mother and father? See, my father wasn't a Christian until later in life, but when we were kids, my dad didn't take us to church, but somehow or another, he knew that honor your mother and father scripture so that your days will be long. And he put it in his own words. He said, listen, I brought you in and I can take you out. I said, okay, that's biblical. That must be in the Bible somewhere. I honor you. Okay, I got it, Dad. But this is how David built his leadership team. These 400 men who came to him and they had nothing to give him because they were in debt. They were in discontent. They were in distress emotionally. But David stewarded those relationships and he took those 400 men and they became his 600 mighty men. He built a leadership team. That's the way Jesus took 12 ordinary men, made him his disciples, and when he was done with them, they were his apostles. And they are the reason that you and I are still standing and pursuing the faith of Jesus Christ today. It's a test of relationship. And how did Jesus do it? How did David do it? He did it by having authentic community. That's what I love about Harvest Church. You all are committed to, to groups. Life is better in a group, right? Wednesday night women, Wednesday night men, celebrate recovery. We have been called to authentic community. Relationship. The third test that David experienced is where we all began this morning. It was in Ziklag. It was in Ziklag where David and his men came back to their home and it was burned to the ground. Everything they loved was taken away. And this 
ask the question, how do you pass the test of discouragement? How do you deal with loss? How do you deal with grief? How do you deal with life when it knocks the wind out of you? You don't see it coming. But when you wake up, you can't get your breath. How do you get your second wind? You have to pass the test of discouragement. What I love about David is that David was a real man. And can I let you know this, that real men aren't afraid to cry. <laughs> Ladies, be careful of a man who can't share the tear. Something's not quite right there. <laughs> now, if he's crying all the time, be careful of that too. But... <laughs> But these men, they wept aloud. I mean, these were fighting men, giant-killing men, fighting with lions in a pit on a snowy day, men. But when they, when they lost their wives and their children and they got that gut shot and the wind was knocked out of, these men cried aloud until they had no more tears. They went through the stages of grief, denial, bargaining, anger, and they got stuck at blaming. And they began blaming David. It's because of you that we lost our wives and our children. It's because of you that Saul is chasing us. They got stuck at blaming. And when you get stuck there, you start thinking of all kind of things. They began talking about stoning David. And this was an opportunity for David to pass the test of discouragement. What do you do as a leader? When life knocks the wind out of you, you got a choice. You can either quit or you can endure. You can either continue to lead or you can just fold in the towel and go back to bed, pull the covers over your head. David refused to be passive. David refused to quit. I believe that David got a glimpse of what Paul told us. Don't be weary in doing well for you will reap in due season if you don't quit. And the Bible says that David found strength in the Lord his God. <laughs> he, uh, the King James says he encouraged himself in the Lord his God. How do you do that? Four things. You got to get your praise on. When life comes and knocks the wind out of you, when your husband says, listen, I found a younger woman. She looks like a Coke bottle. You got to get your praise on. He done lost his mind, but you got to hold on to your praise. When your boss comes and say, we're going to phase out this division, when you lose something, you got to get your praise on. You got you to remember where God has brought you from, and you got to release a hallelujah anyhow. Never, never let your problems get you down. When the doctor says, we looked at this x-ray, this MRI, this mammogram, and we see something that looks like the big C. Don't let life steal your praise. Don't let a loose battery steal your praise. Hallelujah, anyhow. Never, never let your problems get you down. Like Paul and Silas locked up in a Philippian jail. The Bible says at midnight, they sang 
praises unto God. David encouraged himself. He reminded himself of the bear. He reminded himself of the lion he killed. He reminded himself of how God delivered him from Goliath. He reminded himself of how God delivered him over and over and over from the spears of King Saul. Get your praise on. And then number two, get the ephod and start praying. Because after David encouraged himself in the Lord as God, he, he, he said, bring me the ephod. The ephod was a garment that the priests wore when they were trying to get a prayer through to God on behalf of the people. There was something supernatural about the ephod. Now, David didn't say, I need a group of intercessors to pray for me and fast for me like Esther. David didn't say, call Pastor Perry and Barb and Markel and Nicolene. I need them to pray for me. David said, no, I got to get a prayer through for myself because this is a matter of my life and my death. So when the, when the wind is knocked out of you, you got to pray with your understanding in your natural tongue, whether it's Spanish, Samoan, uh, English, whatever it is, but you got to pray for yourself, but then you also got to pray in a heavenly language. The Bible says when we pray with our understanding, we're praying with our mind. Men understand you, but when you pray in the Spirit, it's a heavenly language. You're not talking to people. You're talking to God, and you're praying the perfect prayer according to the will of God because we don't often know what we should pray, but the Spirit knows what we need. When the wind is knocked out of you, you got to pray. you got to pray. I want Markel to come back to the keyboard right now because the third thing that will happen to get your second wind back is when you're praying, God will give you a plan. <laughs> He'll give you a plan. He'll give you divine revelation. Some of you are at a place right now where you're at a valley of decision. Should I keep this job or should I leave? Should I stay in this city or should I go? Should I stay with that woman or this man? Or is this the right one, Lord, or is that the right one? Some of you are in a place of decision right now. Get your praise on. Pray. God will give you a plan. He'll give you a strategy. He'll tell you this is the way, walk in it. When you're in the boardroom and you got to make a sound business decision, you don't have to, you know, anoint the, the board table with, with oil and say, everybody, let's hold hands. No, just begin to mumble under your voice in the spirit. God will give you revelation. He'll give you a strategy that will cause your business to accelerate because he's the God who knows all things. David got a plan. David began to see where the enemy was, where the enemy had taken the wives and the children. God gave him a plan. And then lastly, God told David, pursue, for you shall recover all. That's what I want to say to you right now. I'm going to ask everyone to stand with me this, this, in this service. And if you're watching online, just, just free yourself from whatever is in your hand and just lift a hand or both hands to God. And, and I realize even when asking people to lift their hands, sometimes we are so weary and life has knocked the wind out, out of us that it's even difficult to lift a hand. So just do like this. <laughs> and just begin to pray in the Spirit. You don't know what to pray. Just begin to pray in the Spirit. Just with groans that cannot be uttered, God knows what you need. Just begin to say, Jesus, I don't know what to say, but just speak the name, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Like Paul and Silas in the darkest hour of the night, locked up in a jail, 
soldiers surrounding me, chains holding my hands and feet, but Lord, my spirit says hallelujah anyhow. If you're in a place of discouragement, the spirit of God is saying don't quit. Don't quit. You're going to reap. You're going to reap in due season. You put too much seed in the ground for it not to come back. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Your children will live and not die. They will declare the works of the Lord. Your marriage will not end. Your marriage will not fail. God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Just pray. Just pray. Just tell the Lord, yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, I surrender all. Even before I know what the question is, I say yes. Even before I know what it's going to cost me, I say yes, because I know whatever you're asking me to do, God, is going to be good for me. Father, I pray for those who are watching and those who are here who have lost the wind of God. Jesus, once again, would you do what you did on the creation? Would you breathe the breath of God? Would you do again what you did on the day of Pentecost and release the wind of God into our souls, into our sails? And would you help those, Lord, who are grieving, who have lost things, who are dealing with discouragement? Would you give us our second wind? Would you help us, Lord, who are in difficult relationships to pass that test of relationship, Lord? to love those who are unloving, to honor those who are dishonoring, to forgive those who have hurt us, and to be committed to them even when we don't want to, but to do it by faith and to do it as an act of worship unto you. Help us, Lord. Give us your grace. You've given us love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, long-suffering. You give us your fruit, Lord. Let that fruit of the Spirit come out in the midst of our relationships. And Lord, that which you've given us in our hands, time, talents, financial treasure, wealth, help us to be stewards of it, God. We don't want to spend it and squander it. We want to sow it and invest it so that people come to know Christ. Oh, God, we want you to be glorified right now. Let the wind of God blow upon you today, Harvest Church. Pastor Perry, would you come? Let the wind of God blow upon you today. <laughs> In the name of Jesus. Thank you for joining us once again for this week's sermon podcast. We pray God's blessing on you as you face your day and week ahead. For more videos, messages, and other content, make sure you follow, like, and subscribe to all of our social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at GoHarvestEG. And be sure to check out our website at GoHarvest.org for the latest information on events and services. Until next time, stay encouraged and don't miss the opportunity to be a blessing to the world around you. God bless. Thank you.